Good morning, guys. If um, you came in after uh, Tammy and Kayla's video and you're like, you don't know who I am, my name's Matt, one of the pastors, and um, we're going to um, continue the story. And I want to give you a, um, a reason for why you, I think you should purchase or download this book. Okay, for one, it's scripture, but the, the reason why is it puts the Bible in chronological order. And today is a great example of that, because if you have your Bible, I also have my my, my full Bible with me, right? Because the, the, the story is not the full Bible. It's, it's the story of what God's done, but it doesn't, it's not every single chapter, verse, that sort of thing. But for example, in my Bible, in the Old Testament, there's 39 books in the Old Testament. If you know that, there's 39 books. And Ezra and Nehemiah are about a third of the way through, almost half. And so like, for example, I got my little paper clip here. This right here is where Ezra and Nehemiah are. But Ezra and Nehemiah, although it's kind of towards the beginning of your Old Testament, it's the last of the story in the Old Testament. And why it's at the beginning of your Bible and not towards the back, I don't know why. I'm sure there's a reason. But when you're sitting down and you're a person who's like, you know what, I want to engage the Scriptures, I want to read the Bible, and, and, you, and you will probably say at some point, I don't get this. Well, duh, because you're reading the end of the story a third of the way through. Are you with me? That's why I want to encourage you to purchase this because it puts the Bible in chronological order and it keeps the story going for you. Does this mean we never, never reflect on the entire Word of God? Absolutely not. All right? But it's a great way for you to begin to get a grasp on what God is doing. It's called the story. We're in chapter 21 today of the story. We're going to wrap up this weekend and next the Old Testament portion before we move into, on Christmas Eve, the birth of Jesus. Amen? And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ezra and Nehemiah. So uh, let's, let's turn there, and, and this is how I want to introduce this. I love a good story, right? Even scary stories, sad stories, happy stories. Like, I love a well-told story. I actually finished last night Truman Capote's In Code Blood. Anybody ever read In Code Blood? Four people. Awesome. Okay, it's a classic. You need to read this book. It's about a family in Kansas, in Holcomb, Kansas. Somebody know where Holcomb, Kansas is? Yeah. Who were murdered, true story, way, way back in the 50s. And Truman Capaldi, who's a famous author, right, uh, wrote a book, a nonfiction novel about this. Tremendous story, right? I love a great story. Oftentimes, people ask me the New City story. Because of the position I carry here at New City as the uh, kind of the directional leader, the me and Pastor Chris who planted the church, we, I get asked often, what is the story? I'm sure Chris does too. Like, tell me how you guys got started. And oftentimes the person who's asking this story is another pastor, another church planner who has seen what New City has accomplished in four years, what God has done through the people of this church. And, and they really want to know what's the secret sauce, Right? Like, they want to know, what did you, I want what you have, what did you do? And so they'll ask me questions about this story, right? And unfortunately, they only ask me half of the story. They ask me questions like this. How many community events do you guys do? How many staff do you have? Uh, they'll ask me, uh, how do you decide what you're going to teach on on Sunday mornings? They'll ask me, um, like, how did you get your facility? They'll ask um, all of these public, public things. All these things that you can see. How, they'll ask me, hey, Matt, how many people did you, uh, neighbors did you interview and talk to prior to starting New City? What questions did you ask them? They asked me all of these things on stuff that we did, kind of the fruit, if you will, the, the public side of the ministry. And then they're, they're finished. So they've taken their notes, they've written stuff down, and now they're ready to go and replicate like a cookie cutter, right? 
what we did for their situation. And in my uh, uh, early on in this this ministry journey, I was kind of just I would walk away frustrated. But now I'm a little bit more bold. And so when they're done asking their questions, I will say to the church planner, "You're not done." Yeah, I am. I, I've asked everything that I wanted to ask. Like, no, 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 you're not, you're not finished asking the question. You have to ask the next question. You have to ask the, the better questions. You've, you've talked to me or you've asked questions about all of the public things, all the things that you've seen. Now it's time to ask the private questions. Like, you need to ask the question, like, tell me about the prayer and fasting that took place before New City was launched. Talk to me about what passages that you were just kind of praying over and clinging to during that season. Talk to me about um, what was your study habits and your prayer life like? What was the focus of the team through the week that was maybe expressed on a Sunday morning? Like, you've got to ask me the private questions. Your life, like the New City Story, has two sides. The public and the private. But there is a specific order for your story. And if you get the story kind of backwards, like if you start public about all what you do and then try to catch the private up later, it can be kind of frustrating and messy because what some of you are discovering right now is that what you, that's what you've done. You've pursued career, you've pursued relationship, you've pursued uh, dreams, public stuff, and then God has been messing with your life. Like Marjorie just saying, I can see you now, right? But I'm much better, right? But all of a sudden you're seeing God for the first time and he's beginning to speak to these public things in your life and he's rearranging them for you. And it's kind of difficult at times. So what if we started with the private? We started with the abiding, John chapter 15. We started with the prayer and fasting. We started with the habit of leaning into God and so that he might create the fruit, that he might influence a great deal the public of our life. Amen? Now, the reason I can say this, I want to encourage you, is a lot of my life, a lot of my life has been public first, private second. And so what I just said God is maybe doing in some of you, he's had to do in me. And the great thing about God is he is a genius at doing this, Right? He didn't ask me to leave my wife. That would be really stupid, right? If you met my wife, right? Bozo mood. But God begins to rearrange the desires of my heart and to put him first and how it affects all of the public things that I do. Your life is very similar. And this is what's beautiful about Ezra and Nehemiah. These guys were a pair. They lived in the same time, but they had two different focuses. Ezra is the focus of the private. Nehemiah focused on the public. Nehemiah, I mean, I'm sorry, Ezra comes first. When Ezra shows up in the book of uh, his own book, Ezra chapter 6, here's what's already happened. The, uh, some exiles have already been commissioned by, if you remember, uh, King Cer- uh, Cyrus and King Darius, and they have been uh, commissioned back to Jerusalem. So they've been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And as the scriptures foretold, King Cyrus back in Isaiah is going to release some exiles to go back and build, to construct the temple again. And so when Ezra comes to town, it's been 58 years since then. And Ezra, what's cool about him is Ezra was a preacher's kid. And you can read through all the names and see the generation. But Ezra's grandfather, many, 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 many generations before, was Aaron. Aaron was Moses' right-hand guy. Aaron was the one that God said, you will be the chief priest of my sacrificial system. Aaron, you're going to be the one who lays out the plan and holds accountability to what I've set up so that the people will be atoned for, the people will be forgiven through their sacrificial practices. That way they will always be in right standing with me. Aaron was the one who led that process. And now all of these hundreds and hundreds of years later, we find Ezra. 
however many generations down, grandson of this great, great chief priest, the first chief priest, Aaron. And Ezra comes to town 58 years after the temple has been built, and he is astonished. But it's not a good astonishing. He's actually taken aback by what he has witnessed. And if you will, it's in your insert. It's, in your, uh, it's on the screen. It's in the Word of God. And it's also on the app. If you have our app and go down to the, the Shawnee notes, you can follow along there. But this is what we read in Ezra chapter 9, verses 6, verses 8 through 12. Ezra says, I am too ashamed and disgraced. Remember, he just gets to town. What is he going to walk into? Literally, no cars, no train, no trolley. He walks in. What does he see? I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. But now, for a brief moment, The Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and given us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. Okay, what's he talking about? God has allowed, right, as he had said, for people to leave captivity and exile and start coming back to Jerusalem. He has shown us kindness in the spirit of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of God, of our God, and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said. So now he's echoing something that God had said many, many years before about them coming back to their homeland. He, God gave them a warning and said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, this is really important. Therefore, God says, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time. God told these folks, he told his children, you're about to go off to college. And when you get to college, it's going to be flat out crazy. There's going to be wild parties, there's going to be drugs, there's going to be drunkenness, there's going to be all of this stuff, and all I'm asking you to do in this education that I'm paying for is that you just wouldn't partake in the craziness. I just dumbed it down real good for you, right? God tells the people, the land that I'm sending you, it's surrounded by evil. It's surrounded, it's everywhere, from one end to the other. And you're going to have to make some decisions on what you're going to do or not do. And here's what I'm asking you. Don't fall in love with the girl, the boy from the other culture, because they're going to bring all of their mess, all of their religion, all of their thinking, all of their ways into your home. And if you're going to maintain the relationship, you will change your thinking towards those things. Things that you used to say, no, 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 not me. Because you've invited into your home, you've invited into your bed. Continue that relationship, you will, you will make allowances, and you will give in to those type of things. Everybody understand what I'm saying? That's what Ezra walked into. And so this is what he says in Ezra chapter 10, verse 2 through 3. We have been unfaithful to our God. So now he's got the, the leaders of the town, by the way. Let me get the context. He's rallied up all the leaders, and here you have a guy who has a lot of position. He's a chief priest, really, really important man. And this is what he says to the people. We have been unfaithful to our God, for we have married these pagan women of the land. But in spite of this, there is hope for Israel. There is hope. There is hope. There is hope. Let us now make a covenant with God to divorce our pagan wives and to send them away with their children. This is not a conversation this morning, a preaching, a teaching about we're all going to go get divorces tomorrow. That's not what this is about. But we are going to look at the transferable principles about what is God saying to us today in 2015. 
When Ezra was experiencing this, it was very literal. You guys have married what God said not to marry, so we have to divorce ourselves from this, this practice, and the kids have got to go with them. And you can read the story for yourself. It was a hard thing to lead through, right? Because there was love involved. There was feelings involved. But Ezra said, this is what must happen if we're going to honor God. In 2015, what's it look like? All right. Here's what I would say to us. Ezra called God's people, if we were to look at it today, to 100% loyalty. It is really challenging for you in this room if you want to um, both love the culture and what it represents and God when he says, come and follow me. You, you've got to make a decision. Like you can't fall in love with the things of this world. We are to be of the, uh, in the world, but not of it. Like, it's impossible to get away from all of the temptations and struggles that this world has to offer, but you don't have to invite it into your bed. And you don't have to link with it. You don't have to embrace it. And and what's it called, Kayla and Tammy? Mommy cuddle time or whatever it was? Like, we do that with our culture. We just grab and we rub our little Eskimo kisses noses and we just tell all of these practices how much we love and adore it. And that is what Ezra said, what is going on? This is not what the Lord intended. Paul echoes this as well. If you turn your insert over, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to read this. This is a great passage. Paul says, do not become partners with those who do not what? Believe. Now, what's he talking about? I'm sure they believe something, but he's talking about believing the faith that we carry as Christ followers, that Jesus uh, was sent from God, that he lived a sinless, perfect life as the atonement for our sins. He went to the cross where he shed his blood. He gave his life. He didn't go into a coma. He didn't pass out. He died. Then some people took him off the cross, some followers. They put him in a rich man's grave. A lot of the enemies and a lot of the opposition thought they had won. Yay, he's dead, that, that, that troublemaker. But three days later, what happened? Just as God had foretold, the lungs began to take in air. The blood began to, uh, to, to push, push through, the, through, the, through his veins. And this once dead Jesus, son of God, was resurrected three days later in the mighty power of God. And not, he doesn't come out of the tomb and go, ah, and disappear. Forty days to 500 witnesses, they see this dead man walking put their fingers in their hole, in the holes in his side, the holes in his wrist. They see this dead Jesus. That's what we believe. That's the foundation of the Christian faith. If you're like, well, man, I'm not sure I believe that. Well, let me help you. You're not a Jesus follower. That's the foundation of the Christian faith. Christ was sent. Christ died. Christ crucified. Christ resurrected. That is what our faith and our testimony is based upon. So Paul says, do not become partners with those who do not believe that. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? And what agreement does Christ have with Satan? It's a different word for Satan there. Or what does a believer share in common with an unbeliever? See, all of a sudden, it's, it's not just marriage. It's business relationships. It's best friends. It's, it's whatever you link arms with. Paul says it doesn't make sense. And what mutual agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. You are. We don't go to the temple. This place is not the temple. We are the temple. Wherever you go to lunch after service today, that's where the temple is. You are the temple, the home of the Holy Spirit. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will live in them and will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out of the, their midst. And be separate, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the all-powerful Lord. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that could defile the body and the spirit, and thus accomplish holiness out of reverence for God. Many of us in this room need to take that passage of Scripture, along with the, the Scripture in Ezra, and just pour over it this week. 
Your devotion needs to be all week long. You don't need to worry about, did I read through all of my different devotions? Some of us need to focus strictly on 2 Corinthians chapter 2 through chapter 7, verse 1, because we are guilty of the sin of falling in love, welcoming the, the, the culture uh, into our life in a way that's partnership. And some of us in this room are frustrated with, the, with, with what God's doing or not doing in our life. Could it be because of this very thing? What does he say? You notice in the insert that it's bolded, right? It's, you see how it's bolded? I just copied and pasted that. The reason it's bolded is because Paul is repeating, he's echoing an Old Testament scripture. And he says, look what God says in the Old Testament. I will live in them and will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and separate. Come out of their midst and separate. It's like God saying, I know you've gotten yourself so involved and you've gotten yourself so in-depth with partnerships with people and with organizations that don't hold the faith that you hold, I'm asking you to be bold and courageous and come up out of their midst. I'm not asking you not to wave at them when you drive by. I'm not asking you to serve them. I'm not asking you to care for them. I'm not asking you to pray for them. I'm not asking you not to show them love and care. I'm saying, I'm asking you, do not link with them. Do not give them your heart. Do not partner with them. Do not invite them into your home and call yourself one. Ezra was astonished at how the people had disregarded God's thing, God's ways, God's command. There's a rabbi who says a lot of interesting things, and I don't agree with everything he says. His name is Jonathan Kahn. Maybe you've seen Jonathan Kahn on YouTube. He's a pretty popular cat right now. does a lot of stuff on end times, a lot of interesting uh, uh, sermons he gives. But I do agree with one thing that he's currently preaching, and it's this. Gray is about to be gone. Gray, the gray, you know, uh, there's about to, there's not 50 shades. You know, it, 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 it's, it's currently, um, here's what I'm getting to. Some of you in this room have been able to hide. The young people in the room, you millennials. I'm not picking on you, it's just truth. The younger ones, I'm 38, younger than me, you've been able pretty easily to hide in this cultural fuzziness. You're able to find camps that believe what you feel on Monday, and you're able to find another camp that believe what you believe on Tuesday. And you just kind of go back and forth. I get it. I'm not dogging you. It's, it's our culture. Because our culture tells us all the time, well, if you're just sincere, and, if, you, and if, you're, if, you're, if you're passionate, and if you're just welcoming. But I'm telling you, there's coming a day, and it's coming really, really soon, where gray is gone, and you're going to have to choose either light or darkness. Adults older than 38... Right, you parents, you're not off the hook either. There's coming a day where you're going to have to choose light and darkness. Have you ever, ever read The Stand by Stephen King, another great story? That's what it's about, right? Choosing light or choosing darkness. Colorado Springs or Vegas, where are you going to go? All right, that's the story. And, and here, here's what will happen. The light will say, this is our truth, the word of God. Even the stuff I don't understand, even the stuff I don't agree with, even the stuff that I don't think, think is fair, I will side with this because it has never let me down. The side of darkness, which by the way won't be called darkness because that's way too obvious. I don't want to go there because most of us are scared of the dark. But the darkness will say this. We believe whatever the majority thinks is appropriate at this given time. And it, and it changes. I mean... Again, I'm 38. Some of you are older than me in this room. Have you not seen a, a public opinion change in the span of your lifetime? Well, I was once 
uh, evil or bad or not right is now accepted as okay and even normal. And I'm not even just talking about the middle part of our bodies that our nation tends to argue over a lot. I'm just talking about life in general. And please don't let your focus and all of your uh, passion zero in to what you choose to do with the middle part of your body. Spirituality is way, way, way bigger than that. But I'm telling you, in all ways, things change. Things change. And, and there's two kingdoms. One will say the Word of God is our standard, and the other kingdom will say, well, we're going to kind of see where it goes. There'll be a, maybe a sneaky third. And the sneaky third is the one that says, oh, no, us too. Us too. I believe in the Word of God, but I believe in parts of it. I believe in the parts that don't rally or, or, or frustrate this side over here because they yell real loud. And so there are some pages that I kind of dog ear because I, we're going to ignore those. You know, there's sometimes leaders that say you have to sift the Scriptures. You have to sift the Scriptures looking for truth. And i got a huge problem with that because who in the world's holding the sifter? There's lots of stuff in here that I don't understand. There's lots of stuff in here that doesn't feel good to me. But you know what? Jesus is Lord. He's not a suggestion. He's not an idea. He's the boss of my life. And he asked you and he asked me the same thing that he asked his people from the beginning of the garden till today. Will you uh, submit your lower story to my upper story? Or are you going to continue to cry out to me to change my ways to accommodate your feelings and your emotions? In church, you got to hear this. The Father doesn't change his ways so that you will feel better. I'm just telling you. We just had Halloween. How my kids wanted to eat all their candy night one. It's a silly illustration, but everybody can relate to it. Did I say yes or no? We just spent $1,500 at the dentist in 2015. I said no. No. Why? Because I'm a good, good father. Am I going to let them enjoy candy? Absolutely. I'm actually going to enjoy it when they go to bed. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful system. Right? But a good dad says, listen, I know you really want this, but I know what's better for you. And I'm not going to let you just get sick and cavities and all this stuff later. So, no. And it's okay. I am totally okay that Luke Miller, my four-year-old, doesn't understand that. I am completely okay that he throws a fit and pulls his little arm on the counter and cries because he just wants... Wah. Luke, you're not changing daddy's mind because I know something you don't know. Think of my little girls. When they were Well, another story for another time. Ezra had the heart. Nehemiah comes to town. And Nehemiah sees what Ezra has done, and he says, I am going to go to work on the peripheral. I'm going to go to work on the outside. Look what Nehemiah says, uh, kind of halfway down through here, Nehemiah chapter 1. He says, he, he asked a report from his friends that about, about Jerusalem. And he says, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Why? He says, because the wall uh, of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt uh, with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Why was the wall so important? The center of life was around the temple that Ezra had helped get back to order. But there was no wall. Because there was no wall, there was no safety. And so because there was no safety, you, the people of God, weren't moving back to Jerusalem. We'll stay in Babylon where at least there's safety. And so Nehemiah saw this problem and his heart was breaking for it. So he said, I'm going to do something about it. As Ezra went to work on the private, I'm going to go to work on the public. And so he, he, he comes up with a plan and he begins to rebuild this wall. And each part of town, each section of town, I actually have a picture of the, of the slide. We put the picture up of the wall. So this is kind of a diagram, but it, it was a big wall. And Nehemiah didn't go around the entire city saying, okay, now I've got to build this section. Wherever a family lived, wherever a, per, a group was a part of, they focused on their section of the wall. 
And Nehemiah went around governing this process. And you know what? There was always opposition. Listen, when there's no wall, there's no safety. When there's no safety, people won't come in and make it their home. And when people won't come in and make it their home, there will be no business. And then there'll be no commerce, and so there's no sustainability. So what did Nehemiah bring, if you want to fill this in? Nehemiah led God's people towards safety, success, and sustainability. Nehemiah got the wall. I mean, the story goes, and it's in the the Word of God, it's in the story as well, that with one hand, they had the hammer, and with the other hand, they had the sword. Like, they defended themselves. Did they pray? Absolutely. But these men and women, they defended themselves in the cause they were going after because the sustainability of their nation depended upon these walls getting built because always, all the way up to today, Israel has been surrounded by people who don't want to hurt them that want to kill them. Always. Just turn on the news. Google Israel and see what you find. You will find people surrounding them who want them wiped completely off the map. So with one hand, Nehemiah's got his everybody in the neighborhood with a hammer in one hand working on the wall. In the other hand, they've got the sword. Man, here's the thing. The application could be this. When God begins to go to work on the private areas of your life, here's what he might do. He might begin to call your spirit, call your lifestyle out in certain things. And when he does that, and it could be different for every single person in this room, it could be something as what you watch on TV, who you associate, what party you're going to this weekend. He may mess with you depending on where you are in life. And when the Spirit does, and I trust the Spirit does, why? Because God greatly cares about us, and he wants us to be safe, he wants us to be secure. He calls us to a different way of thinking, a different way of living. But you have to say yes, you have to submit. Or you could simply say, God, I don't want to do that. And God, I'm not going to do that because it hurts so bad. Yeah, it does. The days of gray are soon going to be leaving. And you have to decide, am I going to follow God or am I going to follow my flesh? What I want to do, what I feel is best. My prayer for this congregation is that our feelings would eventually line up to God's ways. There's a church in Atlanta that would say it like this to the teenagers. When I see as God sees, I will do as God says. Some of you don't understand God's vision for your life yet. And so you have a vision for your own and you're going about that. But once it happens, once he gets your private life in order, once he sees that you're submitting your thinking and what the, the things that people don't see, all of a sudden he will begin to give you direction and strategy for the walls in your life that you need to go build. This idea that you're not to have any walls, you're not to have any safety, any security, any success, any sustainability is nonsense. God wants us. Listen, we're going to go out today, and you are expected to be a wall builder. Your wall is called kingdom living. That you are to go out these doors and not stay in your little holy huddle or not stay only in your prayer closet. There is a time to pray and there's a time to go out of your prayer closet when you say amen, which means so be it, that you walk in the direction of that of which you're praying. And you walk out, and you've got your wall-building kingdom of God hammer in your hand. And you're like, I'm going to build this wall. And I'm going to live for Jesus as best as I can in this broken, jacked-up, ever-changing culture. But I am going to build this wall. I can't build your wall. I can govern the wall-building with encouragement and Scripture, but I'm, too, building a wall. I'm too building a wall. I'm too focused on my neighborhood and the areas that God has me. What say you? And then eventually, the crazy, like in 50 days, the wall gets rebuilt. The opposition can't believe that Nehemiah has led this massive wall-building expedition in 50 days. They are blown away by this. And what happens next? 
the private and the public, they merge. Because now that there's safety and there's success and there's sustainability, people have moved into the neighborhood. They've got their gardens going. They've got their, cro- their, their, their cattle and all their, uh, their uh, what do you call it, livestock. All that stuff's going. Like all of a sudden, commerce is happening. And all of a sudden, everything is kind of working together. This convergence, as Rachel said several weeks ago in her story, this convergence of private and public, they come together. And I want to leave you with this last scripture. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 12. If we can put that up there, guys. Last one. It's this. Or maybe I'll need to turn to it if we don't have it up. Yeah, there it is. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. You're like, oh, man, I knew you were going to turn this to giving. I knew, Pastor, you're a good preacher. You can turn anything into giving. That's how they say in Arkansas. You sly, Pastor, you can turn anything into money. Money grab, money grab, money. No. Here's the deal. I want you to give with a cheerful heart. But as a result of the convergence of God, it's private, getting their life in line and blessing them with the security they had. What did the, how did the people respond? What did they do? They were all greedy. And they went and they did, no, 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 no. They brought their gifts. They brought their things. They brought their gratitude back to, the, to where they worshiped. Am I saying we're the temple? I'm, no, 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 we're not the temple. Synagogue is not the temple. The temple is not in function right now. In Jerusalem, it's not the function. The, 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 again, the transferable principle is, if God is blessing you, if God is doing this in your life, how might you do what the people in Nehemiah and Ezra's day did? How might you bring the tithe? This is not for everybody. Because some of us do this already. I don't do the 90-day generosity challenge to get the Moinks family, and I won't, I'll pick up them because he's a staff member, to get them to start tithing. They're already tithers and beyond that. The 90-day generosity challenge is for some of us who simply need a good spiritual nudge to get out of our comfort zone and to begin to kind of live outside ourselves in several fun ways. And you'll see a video next week, and in the video, the person says this. It's a tremendous video. You don't want to miss next week. Tremendous. Like, I've watched it two times, and I'm like, what? Crazy. But in the video, the person says, and it's a leader from Edgerton. She says, I didn't fill out the 90-day generosity challenge card because I didn't want to be held accountable to that commitment. If that was your thinking, listen, we've got over a month and a half left to join up. Be held accountable towards this. If you don't think it's spiritual, if you don't think it's biblical, talk to me about it. I want that conversation. But if you can't make an argument, let us hold you accountable to 90, or not 90, I don't know what it is, 45 days of generosity. But the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Do you think those people brought their stuff going, here you go, Nehemiah, now shut up. Ezra, will you quit talking to us about God now? No, no, no. The Bible is full, about, full, 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 full of generosity. God is a generous God. When we give, we most look like Him private to the public. Private life, what's God saying to me? Public life, what am I going to do about it? Amen?